Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Michael Lerner and Dick Russell, author of a definitive biography series on psychologist James Hillman. Dick Russell, welcome to the New School. Thank you so much, Michael. Good to be with you today. You are the author of a really extraordinary um, uh, biography of James Hillman, uh, a, a great psychologist who um, was in many senses a uh, successor to Carl Jung. Um, and uh, we'll talk about your biography, which I, I really believe may well prove to be the definitive biography of Hillman. Hillman, as you've mentioned, is not well known in the United States. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think Hillman has never had the same traction in the United States as he has had elsewhere? Well, it's a curious thing. Of course, he did have one uh, number one best-selling book, The Soul's Code, when it came out in uh, 1996. And, uh, of course, what helped was getting on the Oprah Winfrey show because she had read the book and, and really loved it. Um, but in general, he, you know, he's much better known in, in uh, Italy, for example. He kind of appeals to the, uh, to the Mediterranean fantasy, also in Brazil, interestingly, and somewhat in Japan much more than, than in the United States. And, um, you know, there are various explanations for that. I mean, one is that uh, the type of psychology that he advocates and has written about in more than 20 books, which is called archetypal psychology, is, is by design difficult to pinpoint. In other words, he, it's not behavioral, it's not developmental, um, it's a whole different uh, kind of psychology that I think is difficult for um, some people, reviewers of books and so on, to, to wrap their minds around. We can get into that more as we talk. Right. And uh, just as Hillman is a, an unusual psychologist, you are certainly an unusual biographer for Hillman. You've, well, you've yeah, done yeah. all kinds of other things, but let me let you describe some of your other work. Well, I've written, excuse me, I've written eleven books now, um, and uh, they're on a variety of subjects. Uh, things that have, have captured my interest over time. My first was on the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, I wrote another book on that subject uh, later. Um, I wrote a book on black genius and the American experience, the genius of African Americans, and the importance of relationships, especially family and mentors in the African American tradition. Um, I wrote two books on natural history, one following the gray whales uh, from Baja, California, all the way to Siberia, um, their migration. And then I did a, a, a book called Striper Wars, which is about a fight I was involved in in the 1980s as a, as a summer fisherman um, on Martha's Vineyard to save the Atlantic striped bass, uh, enlisting fishermen from all along the coast. And then more recently I've done uh, several books with uh, Jesse Ventura, the former governor of Minnesota, um, iconoclast, very outspoken political figure, and um, so that's been a, a whole different kettle of fish, to say the least, from uh, writing about someone like James Hillman. Right, and just to take a moment, your, your two books on the Kennedy assassination, including uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, which Publishers Weekly called a masterpiece of historical reconstruction, uh, uh, that your your work in that area was um, uh, 
was quite groundbreaking, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think I think it is. I, I uh, knew a guy who had been Richard Nagel, who had been who had worked for the CIA and as well as the uh, has been a double agent for the Soviet intelligence and was on the inside of a small conspiracy uh, that he would not tell me all about, but described enough of to uh, eventually warrant a book um, uh, that involved anti-Castro Cuban exiles and CIA elements and the mafia and so on, but. Um, yeah, I think with his story and other interviews I did, I was interviewing people back in the 70s before uh, any other journalist, pretty much. And so I like to think, yes, that the book did indeed break ground and show there was a small conspiracy to assassinate the president. So how is it that someone with this varied background as an environmentalist, a journalist, um, writing on a wide array of topics, how did you come to write the biography of James Hillman? Well, if it hadn't been for a friend of mine who was also a mutual acquaintance of James Hillman's, who sold him his organic vegetables in a market in Connecticut, it never would have happened. And uh, let me describe that a little bit further. Um, my, my wife and I and, and friends had been reading Hillman's work uh, back in the 1990s and finding that it resonated very strongly with us and things that we were going through in our lives. Um, and then I, I found out in, the, I guess it was 1998, um, that my friend Wayne... Um, so sold Hillman his vegetables, and I called Wayne up and I said, uh, "Gee, is there any way that maybe uh, we could meet sometime?" And uh, anyway, that led to my sending uh, Hillman a copy of my book on Black Genius. He liked it. Um, we met for lunch, and it, the whole the book really uh, certainly I had no designs on being his biographer. I'm not a an expert. Uh, I didn't major in in psychology. Um, I've learned about it through the years. I loved the work of Carl Jung when I was young and later, but um, as well as Hillman. But I certainly had no thought of being uh, his uh, biographer until um, we, we, we became friends. And, and he, uh, he was 21 years older than I, um, sort of a mentor to me in some ways, helped very helpful with my uh, with difficulties I was going through, uh, especially with my son. And um, he would visit our home. We would visit his. Got to know he and his wife, Margot McLean. And uh, then in 2004, I guess the beginning of that year, uh, I'd met his older sister, uh, who was a wonderful storyteller, and I just suggested, well, you know, maybe you should get some of her stories on tape. Uh, she has such great tales of growing up in Atlantic City. And uh, so this gave them the idea, uh, James and his and his wife, to bring together uh, their siblings, they were all alive, and James's siblings, they were all alive then, as well as um, his kids, and uh, have a sort of a, a weekend where they would talk about family history, and they, it would all be filmed by a, a filmmaker, and what happened was, as the journalist in the, in the, in the room, I ended up asking a lot of the questions that, uh, that James would then respond to, and, uh, and his siblings, and and this led to the idea that perhaps if he was ever going to write a biography or have, have a biography written, uh, that he would like me to do it. And so it really evolved out of, you know, a journalistic sense uh, and, a, and, a, and a, a very close uh, relationship that had developed over about six years before that. And it's, it's such an extraordinary book, 670 pages, and this is just volume one. It takes him from his childhood up to the beginnings 
of his work in archetypal psychology. Uh, you had you did an enormous amount of work um, interviewing others, uh, getting access to archival materials. Uh, really, uh, it's a, a model of uh, intellectual biography. And my ambition in this conversation is is really to extract uh, with you some of the the core um, uh, lessons, if you will, of this remarkable journey that you took. Um, so I'd like to start, if you would, uh, with the introduction, um, uh, the figure in the carpet, you call it. Uh, I'd like to ask you to read the quote from Hillman that you start um, the section with. It's on page XV, 15. Yeah, sure. Um, Hillman says in Revisioning Psychology, which was his pioneering work published in uh, 1976 or 75, I can't remember, one of those two years, um, where which was nominated for Pulitzer Prize, and, and in that book he says this, Here I am working toward a psychology of soul that is based in a psychology of image. Here I am suggesting both a poetic basis of mind and a psychology that starts neither in the physiology of the brain, the structure of language, the organization of society, nor the analysis of behavior, but in the processes of imagination. And then going to the next page, the first paragraph uh, is a really useful summary. Yeah, tracing roots back to Plato's myth of Ur, uh, the book expressed an idea found in many traditions, and the book here I'm talking about is The Soul's Code, that it is useful to envision one's life following a pattern, neither genetic nor environmentally determined, but guided by a, da a daemon, an in-between imaginal figure, neither material nor spiritual, that accompanies each of us and nudges us toward our purpose, identity, and fate. The book used many bi biographies of a number of well-known people, from the bullfighter Manolete to the violinist Yehudi Menuhin, to develop the idea that we have an innate calling in life that we must strive to realize. If we read life backwards, a pattern becomes discernible. For example, the future bullfighter's fearfulness in clinging to his mother's apron, and the master musician's rejecting a toy violin for the real thing. Such things made sense when one saw the adult already there in the child. More than simply the result of hindsight, Hillman described his theory as akin to the tiny acorn containing the image of the future oak. You go on in the introduction to say that Hillman's approach takes psychology back to its ancient origins, where the word literally means study of the soul, deriving from the Greek psyche. And you say for Hillman, soul is not a substance but a perspective, an inner place that is simply there, even when all our subjectivity, ego, and consciousness go into eclipse. It is also the imaginative possibility in our natures, that unknown component which makes meaning possible, turns events into experiences, is communicated in love, and has a religious concern. So this is clearly, in one way, deeply Jungian. But Hillman, um, it's so fascinating. Hillman was to differentiate himself from Jung in uh, enormously powerful ways. And I was reflecting as I thought about 
if you really think of, of Hillman as Jung's successor, which is a legitimate argument, you have, you know, the father figure Freud, right, a Viennese Jew, uh, and then uh, Jung meets Freud and they develop a very close relationship, and then there's this tremendous break as Jung needs to differentiate himself from Freud, and uh, Jung takes psychoanalysis, sort of takes it out of the sort of uh, sexual fundament, but includes uh, a spiritual dimension, you know, a higher dimension of, of being human, uh, believes that Eros has a much deeper meaning than just sexuality, uh, and develops this whole psychology, which I believe in many respects speaks far more deeply, to, at least to our generations, than Freudian psychology does. And then along comes Hillman, again, an American Jew, right? And yeah. takes this Christianized psychoanalytic theory, which Jung had evolved out of Freud, and again, questions uh, Jung's uh, identification of, um, of self with the Christ, and uh, wonders what a psychology with roots that precede both Freud and Jung would look like, and finds that uh, in the Warburg uh, collection in London, to go to the end of your book, uh, uh, in the tradition uh, of uh, Marsilio Ficino and, uh, and the Greek, uh, and his Greek predecessors. So at that sort of meta level, it's a fascinating lineage. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Hillman's psychology has been called a polytheistic psychology. In other words, there's there's not just uh, the, the the Christian view of Jung, but you know that the that there are many gods and goddesses within us, and uh, so he returns those, you know, the, the, from Mount Olympus uh, way back in Greece to the heart of psychology today, and he looks at how ancient myths uh, give us insight for today's issues. Now, Jung certainly and Freud too, with Oedipus, uh, you know, explored some of this, but Hillman. Uh, really made it a, a key tenet of his psychology, and especially in terms of recognizing these these timeless archetypal forces that are at work, you know, not only within us but around us, and uh, and it's all about you know fundamental fantasies that that animate life, and and ultimately about imagination, the importance of imagination, and uh, and this, as as you said, this, the study of the soul, and uh, the importance of. of uh, We'll get into this later too, but you know, going going down that we are we are we we get our soul experiences from a lot of the tough things that we we go through in life, and we shouldn't deny them, but but uh, you know, look at them and pay attention to how valuable they are. And then ultimately, Hillman talks too about how you know analysis. He was a he was an analyst for forty years, but he says psychoanalysis has got to get out of the consulting room. And uh, what he later called an uh, anima mundi, the soul, uh, soul in the world. He said, "You've got to see that the the buildings are anorexic. The language that we speak is schizogenic, and that medicine and business are paranoid." In other words, he's he's calling for therapists to see uh, patients not only as as ego driven and. Uh, you know, kind of locked into what happened to them earlier in life, but as as citizens, you know, we've got to we've got to get out there and observe and participate in the world around us, and that, of course, gets us into the environmental challenges we face and uh, the big issues, you know, of nuclear war and so on. So, um, 
but at the heart of his psychology, I would say, was an effort to to restore um, imagination and um, and the aesthetic, the importance of beauty and the aesthetic in life. Mm. Going to his origins, uh, he was born uh, in Atlantic City. Uh, his family was in the hotel business. Uh, his mother, uh, he and his uh, sister, regarded as the snob of Atlantic City. Uh, she wanted James to be important. Um, and um, you have a, a quote in that chapter. Um, on page 45, um, could you read the quote from The Soul's Code that you have there and the passage that follows that? Yeah. He says in The Soul's Code, reading life backward enables you to see how early obsessions are the sketchy preformation of behaviors now. Reading backward means that growth is less the key biological term than form and that development only makes sense when it reveals a facet of the original image. Uh, Hillman goes on, he says to me in 2011, but you don't possess your own gift, so you don't really know who you are. I mean that your gift is independent in a strange way. My identity was much more this Atlantic City boy, this sort of common ordinariness that people see, and that's who I feel I am. So, of course, I mean, let me just add to yeah. that, that uh, uh, Hillman was a real down-to-earth guy. I mean, he was somebody that you could talk to him about anything. Um, he was interested in the world. He watched TV and the news and the sports. And, and uh, this is, you know, was part of his, his great uh, charm. I mean, he was, you know, that was the basis of our friendship. We, we, we used to talk about old movies that we liked and the fact we both loved boxing and those kinds of things. So as much as he was an intellectual titan, I, I think that what he says here about this uh, being this Atlantic City boy is very much a key part of his character. Hmm. He believed, among many other things, that grandparents were important ancestral figures, and certainly his grandfather on his mother's side was a very key figure. Could you speak briefly about him? Yes. Uh, his name was Joseph Krauskopf. He was a rabbi. He was he was the leading reform rabbi uh, in America for the early the late 19th century, especially the early part of the 20th century. He Rabbi Krauskopf died. Uh, Hillman never knew him. Uh, he died three years before uh, uh, James was born. Krauskopf died in 1923, and they had this huge, you know, front page big funeral for him in in, uh, in, in Philadelphia, where his church was. Uh, I think too. The, well, there's a couple things about him. Um, uh, his daughter was Madeline Krauskopf, uh, who married um, into the Hillman, you know, married a Hillman, married Joel Hillman, and, uh, or Julian Hillman, excuse me, and she adored her, her rabbi father. I mean, you know, he was the great one, and, and she kind of wanted James to live up to that. But at the same time, uh, and James did in a, in a unique way in the sense that, okay, you have this reform rabbi. You know, he was against, uh, he changed the rules of, of uh, Jewish orthodoxy. He was always rebelling against all of that from the time he came to this country when he was a teenager. And, uh, and, and of course, James Hillman, as a psychologist, uh, did, did much the same thing in, the, in, a, in a sense of, you know, he was, he was going to change it. He was going to make it different. And, and um, so, 
you know, and Krauskopf too. I mean, he was amazing. He he went off, and I tell a lot of these stories in the book. I spent a long time examining him because he went to, he went and had this audience with Tolstoy, for example, um, to talk about uh, starting a, a Jewish farm school. He, he thought perhaps in Russia. He ended up doing it in the United States, but but Tolstoy had a strong influence on him, and they had a marvelous, you know, brief but fascinating relationship. And and. Uh, Krauskopf was also in the Spanish-American War and knew Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting uh, stories about him. And came from absolutely nothing. I mean, arrived at Ellis Island yeah, uh, with nothing. Immigrant. He didn't speak any English. His father had been a woodsman. Uh, he came here looking to find his older brother and, you know, ended up in uh, Fall River, Massachusetts, uh, being taken under the wing of a woman who, uh, you know, got him English lessons and then found this, uh, this school uh, that was teaching, uh, ref- you know, very beginnings of Reform Judaism uh, uh, in Cincinnati, and that's where he ended up going. Mm-hmm. So uh, Hillman uh, came of age uh, during the war years, during the Depression. Uh, his family lost its hotel in Atlantic City. Um, they went through difficult times. Um, but he uh, reflected um, on what were the qualities that enabled uh, him to not only survive this, but for... To, to reach the um, real pinnacle of uh, psychological work that he reached. And there's a quote on page 99 where, uh, where you uh, summarize this. Let me see. Um, yeah, it begins with a colleague of his, Robert Romanishan, uh, asking him at one point, you know, what did, what did he think allowed his work to become so well-known was simply having talent enough. And and Romanishan said that uh, Hillman surprised him with his answer because he said, no, talent's not enough, because if it was just talent, you would have that same kind of recognition. <clears throat> he said in his case, he believed it was a combination of three things at that point, luck, privilege, and ability. Now, he talked about this later with uh, Andre Gregory, the uh, the actor, the director of My Dinner with Andre, some people may remember, and, and they were talking about this question of luck, privilege, and ability, and Hellman said, we added a fourth factor in terms of my life, and his as well, and that was chutzpah. But Andre thinks the chutzpah only works if there's tenacity. You have to be able to follow through to stick with it. And as I point out, that had been a characteristic of of both of Hillman's uh, grandfathers. And uh, another aspect that he later added to the list was self-confidence, which, of course, his, his rabbi grandfather seemed to have had innately in making his way to this country and becoming the figure that he did. So Hillman went on to uh, uh, go to Georgetown University, uh, uh, then he spent some time in uh, Mexico and Guatemala. Um, he came back and got a, 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 a job with a, a CBS affiliate. Uh, but the place I want to go to here is that he gets drafted into the Navy through family connections, and he ends up um, a hospital apprentice. It's his introduction to the therapeutic. Yes. And... Um, could you say a little about that experience in the hospital with returning war veterans? 
I think it was an absolutely formative time for Hillman's life. Um, he was uh, working with soldiers uh, who had been in POW camps in Japan. Uh, they were blind um, uh, primarily. And they'd been drafted like he'd been, and they were sent overseas. And, and uh, you know, a lot of them came from other parts of the country that he wasn't familiar with, like the, like the South. And, and uh, he became their... Uh, you know, he he would work with them every single day, and and uh, he wrote remarkable letters about this uh, home to his home to his family, and I, I quote one of them at some length, and then uh, I read this letter aloud uh, to Hillman in in 2006, and he had no recollection of it, but he began to talk about about uh, his experience there, and and he said he remembered having a kind of talking book library, all these books that. Uh, uh, you know that these guys could could listen to a book. Um, uh, there were these quiet rooms where a Braille teacher would come in and and somebody else to teach the piano. And and he himself spent a lot of time in these rooms. He would read and write poetry and listen to music. And he said he was trying to work through the whole war psychologically. And this was the first time where he felt therapeutic. It was really the calling that that came to him then. And uh, he he felt so connected to these guys um, that he ended up moving into the barracks, uh, moving from the barracks into the ward with them and sleeping there the last several months that he was in the service. He said one other thing about it. He said that it was also he thought the beginning of his his uh, uh, being revolutionary because what he saw with this uh, whole system of, of treatment, uh, so-called, uh, the rehabilitation ideas. You know, they would take these guys out, and, you know, they'd get them drunk, and they'd give them, buy them steaks, and he said it was it was awful. He, he said it was entertainment as as therapy, and, and you know, he felt the insult of it. And, and um, it, I could tell, you know, all these years later, I mean, 50-some years or 60 years since that, uh, that time that... Um, you know, he still remembered all their names. Um, he would still get, you know, get. It would crack him up. You know, recalling this, and uh, and he said, you know, that uh, that that feeling of being with those men. He, well, he, he said something about it in interviews. I'll read you that one brief quote. Um, he said something wanted to go into it more deeply, and the only way to go in deeper was to go in closer. In a culture where there are no deep ideas, no structures of depth. I was already caught up in psychotherapy at 19, even if I didn't know the word. Yes, and you have a beautiful line, amid broken men came the beginnings of what he would one day describe as a soul-centered therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that was a critical turning point. I think so. So he, again, with chutzpah, finagles his way out of the Navy sooner than he was supposed to, just as he finagled his way into the Navy, he finagles his way out of the Navy and gets out early, uh, goes to Europe to join his parents. His uh, father has been in the service in Germany and again gets a job with Armed Forces Network as a radio news writer uh, and then uh, in due time makes his way to Paris, which again is a formative place for him. And let's turn to pages 148, 149. The encounter with uh, Philipson. Who is Philipson? Yeah, Morris Philipson. Uh, they worked together at the Armed Forces uh, Network station, and then Philipson was a little bit older than he, uh, and they end up uh, sharing uh, quarters in in Paris. And the uh, Philipson, I, I may add, goes on to. Uh, 
be the editor of the University of Chicago Press and uh, worked in the publishing world in America. So he became quite prominent in, in his own right later. But at that time, they were just these, these young guys. And uh, But they happened to be in Paris at the heyday of existentialism uh, when all of the everybody was being drawn to Paris, all the American writers. You had, you know, Mailer and Truman Capote. And in fact, there's one very funny uh, letter that Hillman writes back to his parents, and he says, uh, he ran into little Truman Capote the other day, and he said, it is true, his voice is so high, only dogs can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he ran into all these people, and he lived uh, right on the fringe of the Latin Quarter, next to this uh, wonderful place, the Café de Flore, I guess you'd say. Right, yeah. Sartre made famous. Uh, Sartre used to write there, uh, along with Simone de Beauvoir, and and so they were going to the Sorbonne, um, but it was uh, just a, a remarkable cultural time, as it had been, you know, Hillman always found himself uh, somehow, and fascinatingly, at, sort of at the, at, a, at the cultural center. I mean, if you, you go all the way back to Atlantic City when it was, you know, the entertainment capital of America, the precursor to Las Vegas, uh, and then, you know, he's... he's He's working in the Armed Forces Network in Germany and, and covering the beginning of the United Nations and, and then ends up in Paris uh, at the time when uh, it's, I just can't imagine a more interesting time to have been there. You're listening to A Conversation with Michael Lerner and Dick Russell. Uh, you have a wonderful paragraph at the bottom of page 48 where uh, at the age of 80, Philipson is reminiscing about Hillman. You want me to read that? One? Yes, please. Uh, yeah, Philip. I met with Philipson in Chicago, and uh, he's he since passed away very shortly after uh, Hillman died in 2011. Um, and uh, he remembered this about Hillman. He said he was sharp, he was trim, and he wore a seersucker suit while I was still waiting to get out of my khakis. I'd never met anyone in uniform who was more charming and promising. He was obviously going far. He exuded this feeling of aiming high and needing to become significant in the world a supreme overachiever, before anybody coined that phrase. It didn't matter whether he was going to be a writer or a lawyer or a psychologist or run a very big hotel in Atlantic City. What mattered is he was going to run things, and I found it fascinating to watch this unfolding. Also, besides his being smart and worldly and witty, I realized very early on that he had similar tastes and interests to my own. Uh, and then on page 149, the, the last two paragraphs are wonderfully descriptive. Yeah, Philipson recalled Hillman's abode uh, as being at the center of the universe, sharing a wall of the Café de Flore. The Café had some heat during the day that would bring people in to write letters, and we, as we went to the men's room on the second floor, we used to pass Simone de Beauvoir writing, writing at her table. Years later, I learned she was working on her book, The Second Sex. James Dickey later described the scene there in a piece for the Paris Review, which George Plimpton started publishing during the same era. The upstairs of the Café de Flore, where Sartre and Beauvoir worked, was almost a full office day, or, sorry, worked almost a full office day, looked more like a classroom than a bar, and eventually Sartre had his own phone line put in. They were surrounded by the artists who would be the canonical names of the 20th century. Philosophers like Raymond Aron and Merleau-Ponty, writers like Jean Genet and Raymond Quinault, musicians like Edith Piaf. Picasso lived just around the corner and was eventually peer-pressurized into joining the Communist Party. What an atmosphere Paris had then. What drive and engagement and focus. 
Gide was famous, Beckett just about to become so, Matisse was painting his jazz series, the nouveau roman was about to be invented. Everyone was reading Hemingway, who had drunk coffee and written at the Café de Flore in the 20s, and Steinbeck and the new writers from Africa and the Caribbean. When I read about this moment in history, what immediately crosses my mind is how very far we are nowadays from any such intellectual fervor. Yeah, such an extraordinary uh, evocation of uh, such a, a remarkable period of time. Yes. So it's in Paris that, um, that Hillman meets uh, his uh, first great life partner, Kate. How did he meet her? There was this place that, called the Café. Uh, it was a little uh, uh, hole-in-the-wall, you know, downstairs cellar place uh, called the Le Tabou. And it was a real hot spot in the in the city. Uh, was becoming that, and it was later the spot where Marlon Brando uh, became entranced with Juliet Greco, who sang there, and Hillman met Greco as well during that period. But um, uh, one night he was he was just sitting at a table down there, and and he had some friends who were who were Swedish, and uh, one of them suddenly walked into the club uh, with a date, and and. Uh, Let's see, here we go on this page, Hillman. I'll tell you what Hillman remembered of that, that moment. She was wearing a fur coat. She was extraordinary. Nothing like that has ever been seen. I was at the bar, and she was at a table, and when my Swedish friend Bjorn got up and went to the toilet, I walked right over to her and asked if she'd go out with me the next day, and she said yes. That's so that was the beginning. She was a... Uh, uh, Beautiful, uh, 19 years old, uh, from Sweden, uh, spoke good English, um, and um, Hillman uh, quickly fell in love with her. Although, you know, over the course of time, they didn't, uh, they dated, uh, they didn't get together um, permanently right away, um, but she was uh, quite a remarkable, uh, from also from a remarkable family in Sweden, and uh, very wealthy uh, industrial uh, family that he later got to know. And uh, right from the beginning, uh, this is kind of cute, um, the, the, the day or so before he'd met Kate, he'd, he'd seen the movie version of uh, Henry V, Shakespeare's play, which starred Laurence Olivier, and there's this famous scene where the English king is seeking, get, trying to get a first kiss from the beautiful French Catherine, and he says, uh, we are the makers of manners, Kate. So... <laughs> That's how he started to quote that to her because most people didn't call her Kate. Her, her name was Katharina, and uh, other people people called her other things. But from the beginning with him, uh, she was always Kate. Uh-huh. Now, from Paris, he uh, makes his way to Dublin, to Trinity College. Um, tell us a little bit about his time in, uh, in Dublin at Trinity. Yeah, well, well, Trinity College in in those days was a uh, it was a terrific school. It went all the way back to I forget what the fifth you know way back to the fifteenth century. Uh, they had the Book of Kells there. I mean, it was a marvelous library, and it was a it was a real, uh, especially after the Sorbonne. I mean, he wanted to uh, to go there and study philosophy and and psychology. In those days, though, Hillman really wanted to be a, a writer, and it was. Uh, Ireland was you just so he had this fixation on James Joyce. I mean, he'd read Ulysses in Paris, and uh, he felt that Joyce was kind of a kind of wizard, a romantic poet of language, and and um, so he originally moved initially when he got to Dublin. Um, 
start going to school at Trinity, he moved into this uh, 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 place out in, I guess it was called Sandy Cove, as I recall, and uh, it was right across the street from the Martello Tower where Joyce had, had set the beginning of, uh, uh, you know, had Stephen uh, Dedalus come up to the roof that overlooked Dudlin Bay in his, his great novel. So, uh, you know, Hillman kind of, even there, he wanted to be where his literary idol had had, uh, had, had set this scene. And, uh, and I, we can talk more about Dublin. I mean, it was an amazing uh, place in those days uh, for for uh, for writers and poets and and uh, just as Paris had been. No, it wasn't just yeah, Paris. I said just as Paris had oh, been. Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Just as Paris, indeed. Right. I mean, right. it was. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, Hillman quickly became very good friends with uh, uh, J. P. Dunleavy, um, who was at that point. Not a famous writer. He he became so in the 1950s when uh, he wrote the the Ginger Man, which I think has sold something like 24 million copies over the years. Uh, but at the time, Dunleavy wanted to be an artist and uh, and and was also going to Trinity College, and they became uh, became very good friends. Um, there's a story that that uh, when they first met, which was at this uh, party at the American Embassy, and were introduced by a mutual friend, uh, Doug Doug Wilson. Um, either one of them said, uh, the other one said uh, that, that they pre- Hillman approached John Levy maybe, and said, uh, well, we are the most interesting men in this room. <laughs> and uh, Don Levy thought maybe it was that uh, he went up to him and said, you are the most interesting man in this room, or something like that. But anyway, it was, a, it was a, obviously a relationship that, uh, that began in, in humor and, uh, and, and wonderful, you know, Connection. So his 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 time at Trinity is interrupted uh, by a diagnosis of tuberculosis, and he ends up in the Swiss Alps at a, a sanitarium. Uh, say a little bit about the significance of that period of time. I think, like the experience that he had with the in the Navy uh, with the with the with the returning veterans, um, the therapeutic times that he had with them, that being in a TB sanatorium uh, was much the same or a continuation of this for him. It happened early on when he just enrolled at Trinity, really, and uh, suddenly he has chest pains and he's he's. he's Parents get him into this uh, sanatorium, and in those days, uh, they were just coming up with uh, the the antibiotics for for TB, and it was the, it had been the leading cause of death uh, across the U.S. and Western Europe until the early 40s. So, you know, there was no guarantee that he was even going to survive, and a lot of the people, the young people that he knew in that sanatorium, uh, did not survive, and he was deeply affected by this, and also, but it gave him an opportunity to 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 read a great deal and uh you know not he read the you know thomas mann he read uh uh you know all, all kinds of writers and he read the bhagavad gita he was immersed in greek mystic philosophy uh he loved the pre-socratics uh read shakespeare and plato and so forth so yes all and, of that and, and keats and keats absolutely and began to uh to uh, write down his dreams and uh, for the first time. And, and he uh, and there's one quote that I would like to share with you, which is something Hillman said in 2010, along the lines of what I was saying. He said, like the Naval Hospital, I was immersed into pathologizing and tragedy. Young people dying. I somehow literaturized it as I wrote poetry and listened to music at the Naval Hospital. But at the sanatorium, I lived the high standard of Swiss hospitalization, well protected. But it was macabre. I never felt or believed I would die. Puer immortalism. It was the others who were dying and being ruthlessly operated on, etc. 
the Puer complex feels immortal. He also, yeah, that's so beautiful. He also goes back, uh, you have a quote uh, from George Santayana, uh, where he says, uh, I think uh, Santayana has the same attitude toward God as I. He is a religious person without believing. He said to me, this is uh, Hillman to you, I would have been a monk if I had the faith. It is the myth of God that sustains us and it makes life worth living, death acceptable, and every act significant if one believes. I chose to believe because of the beauty therein involved. So uh, that's a lovely quote. Yes. Yes, and he had met uh, Santayana in Rome. Uh, he was the very famous philosopher of the time. He was 85 years old, I think, at that point, uh, the same age that Hillman was when he died, um, and spent you know several days with Santayana talking about uh, some, some things which were, again, very pivotal, I think, in his intellectual development. Hillman then goes back to Trinity, and again, uh, of the seven students graduating in his term, he comes out with first honors, ranking second highest among them. Uh, so um, uh, there's a lovely quote in one of his letters, my own metaphysic is slowly beginning to work into shape. I see the unconscious as the biological self, the reality of matter underlying and joining the entire world together. In that sense, it is pantheistic because God is matter and so forth. So he's working out his metaphysics in that period of time. Yeah, it's a time when he's reading all of the great philosophers, you know, going all the way back up through, uh, you know, Kant and Hegel and, and, and sort of forming in his mind what, what works for him and, and what doesn't. And he's also in a milieu, I think it's important to add, where, um, you know, he, he'd grown up in America in the 30s as, as what he called a, you know, a kind of a bourgeois intellectual nerd. And uh, he was Jewish, and there was anti-Semitism deep in the culture. But once he got to Ireland especially, he said, well, once he came to Europe, uh, and then in Ireland it really came to, to the fore, he said, I, I was an American. And we said, we just won the war, you know, we were the conquering heroes, and, and it, was, it was really a freeing uh, thing for Hillman. I mean, he, there are stories of him, you know, Dunleavy said, well, he introduced jitterbugging to Ireland, you know, I mean... <laughs> He was a guy that you would hardly expect to be, a, you know, uh, be out there on a, on a stage dancing the jitterbug and, and blowing people away with it. But, but he did, and just as later, but I should add that he became a, he entertained people uh, at, at parties and all over the uh, over the place with his tap dancing, which he learned late in life, and which was a marvelous thing that he did. Right. But uh, I think it's important to say that that uh, in the in these ways, uh, Ireland was a really, really significant form. You know, as I was reflecting for this conversation, uh, I read uh, Patricia Berry's book, Echo's Subtle Body. Of course, mm. Patricia Berry was his second wife and yes. his uh, student before that. And there's a wonderful quote uh, in, uh, in Berry's book. Uh, quote, it was a great mistake on Freud's part to turn his back on philosophy. So charges C.G. Jung and in doing so, sets for himself, quote, the bittersweet sweet drink of philosophical criticism as a perpetual test, indispensable for the making of psychology. By remaining critical, Jung never stopped making psychology. Uh, and uh, 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 so Jung writes, philosophical criticism has helped me to see that every psychology, my own included, 
has the character of a subjective confession. I know well enough that every word I utter carries with it something of myself, of my special and unique self with its particular history and its own particular world. And the reason that I read that is that uh, in order to understand Hillman, it seems to me, one has to take uh, this, this period of, uh, this early period uh, in Paris, uh, at the sanitarium uh, at Trinity College, very seriously, because it is here that both the uh, philosophical, uh, literary, and religious roots of his archetypal psychology are founded, and uh, and and he learns here the deep languages of these three fields in ways that will completely inform. Uh, his archetypal psychology. Yes, I think that's that's very true. And yeah. uh, and, and you know, Trinity College had had some. Uh, it was very rigorous. It was uh, very. It was steeped in the classical traditions of of philosophy. And he and he had to really you know study his butt off to to uh, to learn it to do well, and then to you know discard and and keep uh, what was what was valuable to him. And that was. That was true uh, literarily too, because then, uh, if you if you'd like, we can talk about how he got involved with this remarkable literary magazine that was uh, just beginning to be published at that time called Envoy, and he became one of the editors of that. Yes, I'd like to go to that in a moment, but before we do, just a couple of other wonderful lines that you have. Uh, you speak of how Hillman loved Ezra Pound's line, "Quote: Out of all this beauty, something must come," mm-hmm. and he talks about what Dublin was like for him, and you have him saying, it was like a mystical experience for me. To me, Dublin was all beautiful. It was actually horrible, barefoot kids, poverty, drunkenness. It wasn't beautiful, but there was the feeling of beauty. I just think that's a wonderful, you know, perception of, uh, of how he sees beauty in the midst of the squalor and the, the difficulties of life. Yes, he absolutely did, and and uh, you know he lived in a little rooming house there, and and <laughs> there's a lot of stories that, that he told about the, the the landladies that he you know had to had to discover, and and uh, who would tell him their tales, and you know he was living in this little tiny room, and the, uh, but it was it was very important, I think, again psychologically to to uh, <clears throat> learn about psychology uh, and beauty from the ground up, as it were, you know, from the depth. And then, as you mentioned, he becomes the uh, associate editor of Envoy magazine, a new Irish review of literature and art. What was his time with Envoy like? Well, I think it was very uh, rich for him. Um, he, he he wrote uh, and published a number of short stories uh, in Envoy. Uh, he worked there with, very closely with Dunleavy. Um, Discover actually, this is kind of, this is kind of fascinating to me that Samuel Beckett, who later went on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, was was pretty much unknown at that time. But but Hillman in, in was assigned to review a lot of the manuscripts that came in, and and alone among the editors at Envoy, he picked this uh, this this short story by by Beckett, um, which later became uh, Watt W A T T, a famous uh, Beckett um, novel, and. Um, 
So he was he could tune into these kind of things too. And but it was really important for him to get to know uh, poets uh, in particular. Um, Patrick Kavanaugh uh, was at the time not very well known. Um, today he's considered you know one of the foremost poets of the 20th century, especially uh, of the Irish variety. Uh, Seamus Heaney, the uh, Nobel laureate, you know, called his his Kavanaugh's poetry said it had a transformative effect on the general culture and liberated the gifts of the poetic generations who came after him. And uh, he worked at Envoy and uh, with Hillman, and um, so Hillman would see him see him regularly, and, and and he became you know one of his one of his mentors. And later in life, um, Hillman became very close to uh, to the poet Robert Bly. Uh, they did a book together, uh, Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, collection of poems. And again, this goes this goes along with Hillman's uh, psychology, which has always appealed more interestingly to artists uh, and, and in the sense of you know writers, poets, uh, painters, um, than it has uh, often to psychologists. Yes, you have a wonderful line, speaking of uh, his identifying Beckett's work, um, where a Beckett scholar uh, says that uh, the, uh, the study of the, uh, the depth psychology has a curious Beckettian quality, entering the region of no return. And I'd love to have you read the epigraph uh, on page 246, that he used for the last uh, section of his extraordinary 1999 book, The Force of Character uh, and the Long Life. It's a short uh, excerpt, but it gives you that sense of the intersection of, of Beckett and Hillman's death psychology. Yeah, it's from Beckett's uh, Watt. Night is now falling fast, said Goff. Soon it will be quite dark. Then we shall all go home," said Mr. Hackett. Right, <laughs> and uh, it's so again to this intersection, which you so beautifully describe. Of um, as you said, uh, Hillman was deeply intrigued by uh, James Joyce, and uh, uh, and you have a line that the Joyce connection to Neoplatonist thought and depth psychology already intrigued him. Uh, so these were things I really didn't know before, this, this intersection that you bring out of, uh, uh, of how the literary and the Neoplatonic and depth psychology were all deeply connected, how uh, Joyce, of course, was influenced by Jung and uh, he wrote Ulysses while Jung was embarked on the Red Book. Exactly. And you say, for Hillman, these two men who first expressed the merger of literature and psychology became the ancestor figures that he felt compelled to pursue. Yes, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the Joyce-Jung connection, I mean, Joyce, uh, he, he had a... He had a a line he, he tended uh, in one way to dismiss Jung. Uh, he said, "Well, you know, he liked him when we were young." He recalled a time when we were young and easily frightened. Right. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, uh, Joyce uh, had a had a daughter who uh, was schizophrenic and uh, and had her see Jung. And although Jung did not. Uh, you know, cure her. I mean, you don't cure schizophrenia. Um, but there was this uh, really interesting uh, connection between with the two of them. 
And bringing back in the philosophical theme, in one of his trips to Germany, uh, Hillman hears uh, Heidegger, the great philosopher, speak, and speaks of him as the Sartre of Germany. And then again, you bring in um, a, a really wonderful book that I've read, 1984 book called The New Gnosis, Heidegger, Hillman, and the Angels by Robert Avons. And uh, there's a beautiful quote uh, uh, the aim of the kind of thinking promulgated by Heidegger and Hillman is to destruct the very impulse to imprison reality in a system of concepts. Uh, both, in, both of these men, in Heidegger's phrase, are thinkers in a needy time. Mm. And I love that sense that, uh, after all, because I think part of Hillman's critique of Jung uh, was that Jung had, of course, uh, used a, a medical scientific vocabulary and tried to force depth psychology into a medical scientific uh, paradigm. Right. And, of course, Hillman says that doesn't work. Uh, you know, what works is a, a literary, poetic uh, language. Um, and, and with Heidegger, uh, again, is breaking the shackles uh, that try to uh, imprison uh, reality in conceptual form. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that's exactly yeah. correct. And, and that's one of the places where Hillman uh, certainly diverged uh, from, from Jung and also from the whole, what he called the medical model. I mean, Hillman had no use for it, and he felt that uh, the medical model had in many ways uh, corrupted psychology. Of course, that's not all Jung was about. I mean, Jung was the one first to explore the collective unconscious and uh, very important uh, things that Hillman you know, also felt were vital. But right. that whole scientific way of, of approaching psychology and therapy was uh, anathema to Hillman. You're listening to A Conversation with Michael Lerner and Dick Russell. In the second issue of Envoy, Hillman reviews a book called The Sacred River, An Approach to James Joyce by I.A.G. Strong. Uh, and Strong says that the philosophy of Giambattista Vico uh, gave Strong the idea for the structure of the book. Uh, and uh, that Vico was, and this is the point here, the first in modern times to attempt to set out the 12 gods of, Olympics, of Olympus as basic structures with psychological significance. So um, could you say a little bit about what that meant to Hillman? Yes, uh, later on, in revisioning psychology, Hillman's, one of Hillman's opuses, um, he, he gets into the importance of, of Vico and Ficino and these, these Renaissance-era uh, philosophers, um, you know, who had uh, uh, come up with, you know, the doctrine of poetical characters in Vico's case. And uh, so, yeah, I think, it, and, and again, it's this, it's this interesting continuity from, uh, from Vico to... Uh, to, to uh, Joyce, to Jung, um, in fact, Beckett is part of this, too, because uh, Beckett uh, had been Joyce's um, student, and then his assistant, then his friend, and the first published work that Beckett ever wrote was an essay that he, in 1929 that he called Dante, Bruno, Giordano Bruno, Vico, and Joyce. Right. And, so, you know, there's, there's this curious undercurrent going on uh, through... Uh, 
through the world at that time. That that's part of Jung's Red Book is part of it. Ulysses is part of it, and uh, and Hillman picks picks up on that and and carries it forward in his later writing. Mm. I won't take time on two major episodes uh, in his uh, life: his trip with Kate to Africa, to the to the Sudan, uh, and uh, beyond, which was to Congo and Kenya. Um, and then uh, his trip again with Kate uh, to Kashmir, where the two of them lived. Um, and there's a great deal that we could say about both. Uh, but uh, if we go to the Kashmir episode, um, uh, he, he has a remarkable encounter with an Indian mystic in Kashmir. Could you say something about what happened? It was another pivotal moment, I think, in, in Hillman's life. Uh, the, the man was Gopi Krishna. Uh, he met him in a, in a bazaar in, uh, in, in Kashmir, in the town of Srinagar, where uh, Hillman and Kate were living. And, uh, you know, he said he went skeptically at first. And, and, but Gopi Krishna uh, was uh, someone who had been through, in the yogic tradition, what is called uh, kundalini. Uh, where one is uh, seized by this what what he called super physical energy, and it's a Sanskrit term, uh, kundalini, which is for what it means is it's the primal energy of human consciousness, and it's represented in the form of a serpent that's coiled around the spine, and and for in Gopi Krishna's case, um, he you know it started with this kind of uh, ecstatic uh, you know circle of consciousness where his body was bathed in light, and then it it later turned into really living hell for quite a long time. Um, and Hillman had this encounter with him um, where um, you know, Gopi Krishna is telling him about how these languages came to him and so on, and, and then uh, he says something about the spirit. And Hillman said this, the way Hillman told it to me years later, he said, I, in my American practical side, said how spirit emerges from the body, and the body produces the mind, which is more or less squeezed out of the brain, your basic Western material scientific thinking. But he said this shook him up. He said, Gopi uh, Krishna almost went into a trance. It shook him up so much. And he said, Gopi Krishna replied, spirit, or kundalini, did not emerge from the body, but it could be understood as an internal biological mechanism that was responsible for creativity and genius and religions and mystical experiences. And Hillman at that time said he found this uh, just a fantastic idea. And um, we can continue the story if you want. I mean, Gopi Krishna, he met with him again, and uh, Hillman told him he was planning to go into the, you know, into the mountains with Kate, uh, mountains of Tibet, and, and Gopi Krishna said, oh, that's, that's great, that's where you should go, you know, that's where man finds God in the mountains. And what happened to Hillman there was uh, was very, perhaps he found God, but in a very different way than he expected. He had a he had a dream there uh, that was so banal um, that uh, about his, uh, his his mother and his grandmother lying on bunk beds uh, that it sort of sent him down the down the mountain and you know into analysis eventually. Right, and and uh, and precipitated in some respects his whole sense of uh, of peaks and veils as yep. a, a core concept. Could you say a word about that? conceptual dichotomy. Yeah, uh, Hillman did an essay in the mid-70s called Peaks and Veils, and it was about the soul versus spirit, and uh, really what he's talking about here that, you know, peaks, you know, mountain peaks have always belonged to the spirit ever since, you know, Mount Sinai, Mount Olympus, etc., 
But uh, he said to find the soul, the word veil, V-A-L-E, it comes from the Romantics, and and Keats um, became like a psycho became like a psychological motto for Hillman: "Call the world, if you please, the veil of soul making, and then you'll find out the use of the world." And by that. By soul making, Hillman means you got to go down. You got to, you know, you're going into the valley to find uh, to find the soul, which is what happened to him. I mean, he was driven down into the valley from the mountaintop um, uh, for a long period of uh, extreme uh, psychic uh, difficulty, and uh, and Hillman always made a big differentiation between uh, he did he didn't like the the whole uh, spiritual. Uh, Part of the of Eastern philosophy of, of Eastern mysticism, he was much more into um, the, the 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 soul making um, aspect. And to do that, as I say, you gotta you gotta suffer. You gotta you gotta dive deep. Yeah, this is this is really a critical point, isn't it? Uh, this distinction between spirit and soul, which uh, which remains fundamental to him. Uh, he says, uh, you know, Oriental transcendences. The effort to rise above the hassles and tangles, be wise, not snared, court bliss, not affliction. In the East, this transcendence arises in richly pathologized mythic context. In the West, it comes freed from these pathologies and offers another way to bypass Western psychopathologies. Yeah. And there was actually a very interesting uh, essay by somebody whose name I've forgotten uh, in, uh, I think it was Tricycle magazine, called, uh, called Spiritual Bypass, which was precisely about how uh, common it is in our time for people to take these Eastern traditions and you know, rise above uh, uh, the hassles into spiritual transcendence. But then when they come back to Earth, they are deeply unequipped to deal with the pathological realities of the soul. So I think I have found um, this particular distinction in Hillman to be uh, really one of his greatest contributions. Yes, I think it is too. I, I really do because I well I've gone through some some experience with that in my own life and and uh, you know but he, what Hillman does is he always gives you this twist to think about. He, he you know he's he's turning he always turning ideas upside down and. Uh, and giving you a, a new way to, to look at experiences. I, I think along those lines that you were talking about, he said uh, uh, in that in revisioning psychology, he said by going upward towards spiritual betterment, people leave its afflictions, giving them less validity and less reality than spiritual goals. So in the name of the higher spirit, the soul is betrayed. And I think you know that's at the core of a lot of what uh, what he's he's written about over the years. So then he and Kate. Uh leave uh, 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 leave uh, Kashmir and they go to uh, Sweden to get married in this incredibly traditionally formal wedding with his her very formal parents. The day before the wedding, Hillman has a remarkable experience. Could you describe it? Yeah, it took him many years uh, of actually working on this book. I worked on this for seven years with him, um, and uh, before he would he could get to this. I mean, it was just still too much for him to talk about. But what uh, what, what he 
what he told me about finally was that he, just before the wedding, he realized that Kate had gone off to see her, her former boyfriend, that this was all getting too much for her. And, uh, and then, uh, so he, they're talking about this, he and Kate, uh, before the wedding, and they're, they're in their room on the bed. And he said, I, I must have felt like she was cutting out or everything was collapsing, because he said suddenly he felt lifted off the bed. And he has this sense of extreme heat in the sacrum, and it starts at the base of his spine, and it's going all the way up uh, the back of his neck to the scalp, and his voice shoots up into a high register, and uh, he feels his scalp stiffening and rolling back, and his eyes going back into their eye socket. He said it almost knocked him out. And so what was happening to him really was, uh, he admitted, uh, was he had this Kundalini experience, but he but he, he damped the idea down. He didn't want any part of it. But he said he went through the whole whole wedding that way, and uh, um, and it it was really what uh, you know. He said he he was pretty crazy for the next several months after that, and it's it's ultimately what uh, made him decide, made them decide, uh, not to return to India, which was his plan at that point, um, and. Uh, study Indian dreams is what one thing he was going to do. He was also wanted to finish a novel that he'd been working on. But um, instead, they end up uh, in Zurich uh, in the, at the Jung Institute. And that's where we should go next. Uh, you, uh, you treat uh, Zurich, the early student years, uh, in some depth. Um, and uh, he and Kate sort of settle in. They're taking classes. Um, He's remembered as the bad boy of the Institute. He makes jokes. He has an independent spirit. Um, and then uh, we could spend a lot of time on that. But uh, he decides to write his dissertation on emotion. And um, he goes to see Jung to talk about this. And on page 413, there's a beautiful quote about what Jung says to him about emotion. Yes. Um, this is his first private meeting that he has with Jung, and uh, if I'm in the, on the right quote here, Hillman jots down a page of Jung's points, and included among them were, live the emotion, let it have its say. Thinking and feeling only give you part. Not until you do it in the body is it real, and emotion makes things real. People are against emotion because they find they're not alone and ruler of their own house. Right. And, and that, again, is a, f a fundamental insight for Hillman about his, what becomes his polytheistic psychology, that, that we are not the masters in our own houses, that the ego with our sense of control uh, is, in fact, a minor figure in a drama in which there are other mythic dimensions of our experience, which actually have more power in our lives than the ego does. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fundamental, and this was a, a pivotal we, a meeting for him in, in another way, because, well, he has this, uh, I, I give this bit of active imagination, as it's called, a dialogue, an imaginary dialogue that he has with Jung, and then right, right after that, he's He's walking along. He's had this kind of hang-up uh, for years now because uh, Dunleavy, for, uh, his old friend from Ireland, is now very famous. Uh, he's written The Ginger Man. Dunleavy represents to him the writer that Hillman really wanted to be. And, you know, it seemed that this whole separate world from what he was pursuing in psychology and philosophy. And suddenly he's walking up the hill uh, 
uh, toward his house, which is next to the zoo in Zurich there. And suddenly this burst of insight comes that he never forgot it, that there wasn't a separation, that he could be a psychology writer beyond just the academic. He could do books. And it was a, it followed this, this meeting with Jung where he's working intensely on his thesis where that, that other aspect of his psychology is, is coming to the fore. Hillman uh, completes his studies as seen as the most brilliant graduate in the Jung Institute's 11-year history. And then, uh, essentially, again, chutzpah uh, raises its uh, head. He essentially creates the position of director of studies at the Jung Institute and sets out to transform the Institute. What were his goals? Well, I think he he wanted to expand the Institute's horizons. I mean, at that point, he found himself more and more at odds, uh, I should say, too, with the traditional Jungians. Uh, Jung was in his last years of life at that point. Uh, and Jung was very supportive, obviously, of, of Hillman coming in. But, you know, he's an American. Um, uh, he's in a position he wants to raise money. to to. There are more and more students from, from the U.S. Uh, coming to enroll at the Institute. And so he, uh, he convinces uh, the powers that be I'm sure with Jung's blessing to uh, to become the director of studies, and and then he starts bringing in all these these amazing guest lecturers. He's who are you know from different fields. He's got Lawrence Vanderpost, who was a friend of Jung's. He's got uh, Gershom Scholem, who was a professor of Jewish mysticism from Jerusalem. Um, uh, you know uh, Paul Tillich, a Christian existentialist philosopher. Lewis Mumford, a literary critic, who was you know very involved in talking about American architecture and urban life. Um, and Hillman's, you know, bringing in all these people to give seminars. So there's a there's a tension that's starting to build between the local Jungians and you know these these people who because they're a pretty closed world, as he put it, you know, rather defensive and caught up in, in uh, adoration of Jung and so on. So he's trying to break the mold here and and uh, and turn it into something new. And as he does that, the early praise that he got from Yolanda Jacobi and others turns to strong doubts. Uh, he explores uh, parapsychology with Eileen Garrett, the president of the Parapsychology Association in New York. He publishes his first book on emotion, a comprehensive phenomenology of theories and their meanings for therapy. And then on June 6, 1961, Jung dies. And Hillman is um, in the room with the inner circle, goes in to see the body, and he gets a message somehow. What was the message? Yeah, it was pretty profound. Again, uh, it, it followed an you know an encounter with one of the uh, the more traditional uh, Jungians, where he's, he's he's waiting outside, and and uh, you know he's brought uh, uh, white lilies. Um, he didn't for some reason, and Yolanda Jacobi had brought red roses and sort of made this down-putting remark to him about him being this weak on him a man and so on. Um, but then he's alone with Jung's body in the room, and and this is. I will read you this passage. Yeah, here it is. Um, This is what Hillman remembered about this. He said, I don't know to this day whether I had an experience whereby it was his voice telling me or whether this was an idea or dream or fantasy or imagination that I had. But it was somehow as if he said, don't weep or mourn or don't be in this kind of lily state. Get out and work for me. So I had a sense there was a job for me to do. And then Hillman said in 2011, uh, not too long before his death, he said, of course, I took this idea of a job to do in an extroverted, worldly manner. Only all these years later do I realize that the real work was the soul work. Uh Uh-huh. So beautiful. 
So the very next year, uh, after the, the death of his great mentor, Carl Jung, uh, he conceives the central ideas uh, for his archetypal psychology in many respects and begins to uh, work on his first real book of archetypal psychology, Suicide and the Soul. What, what was he thinking about uh, and what was he working out in Suicide and the Soul? Well, he was writing it, for one thing, a lot of it in Ireland. He went back to Ireland to work on it. And, of course, you know, the central theme of the book is a very Irish theme, the death. And uh, he had a lot of talks about this with, with Kate. And, and uh, he said in the opening of the book, he said, going into these questions about death and suicide means you've got to break open some taboos. So he's approaching what's called the suicide problem in those days in a whole different way, not from this perspective of mental health, but to look at suicide not only as an exit from life, but also an entrance to death. Now, he's not condoning suicide. He's not saying, oh, this is, you know, a good thing or something, but he's, he, nobody's ever written about suicide before outside the medical model. And, and uh, he, according to what Hillman believed, was that death is actually a central theme of analysis because, as he put it, and we've talked about here, the search for the soul leads always into the depths. And so depth psychology has to address this question of suicide, death, um, and that's what he's trying to do in, uh, in, in many ways in, in uh, Suicide in the Soul. And you have this beautiful quote, uh, just so memorable. Um, soul is that unknown human factor which makes meaning possible, which turns events into experiences, and which is communicated in love. Uh, that's from Hillman. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary. So uh, uh, soon thereafter, another year or two later, uh, he lectures in London on betrayal. Again, the the t the topics he chooses are are characteristically so bold, right? Yeah. Suicide and the soul, betrayal. You know, he takes these extraordinary topics. His talk on betrayal gets him invited to the Aranos conferences, which we'll talk more about. Uh, but this talk then becomes central to the American actress Helen Hunt, uh, who made it uh, core to her uh, film directing debut, and then she found me. So what was his point of view about betrayal? What did he have to say about betrayal? He, it was very unique. Um, he said in the in the in this essay that were an essential truth about both trust and betrayal is that they contain each other. Now we think about that for a minute. He says, you know, trust has within it the seed of betrayal, and betrayal has within it the seed of forgiveness. Betrayal being the dark side of both, but giving them both meaning and get, making them both possible. So. In that sense, what he's saying is that betrayal is, you know, I mean, it goes all the way back to, you know, it's at the heart of the, the Christian mystery in, in biblical days and the Old Testament stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and then, you know, the story of Jesus. I mean, the ultimate uh, moment of, of betrayal uh, in terms of, gee, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Hillman seizes upon these things as, as central to, uh, you know, our, our human existence and, and the psyche and, again, puts this... Uh, sort of remarkable um, twist on it. Uh, it didn't sit well with everyone, but uh, I think it's one of his uh, his most amazing essays. 
And then that opens into this whole uh, experience of his inner life that he discovers his wife Kate uh, has been romantically involved with her therapist Meyer, who is a, you know, a key figure with him also. Then he gets involved with one of his patients. Uh, her husband, the patient's husband, uh, discovers uh, that he was involved with her and gets a copy of Hillman's uh, letter to his wife, which he sends to the governing board of the institute. And essentially, the, the minister husband of the patient that uh, Hillman got involved with sets out to uh, destroy Hillman. Yes, and it goes on for several years. It's a, to just say it's a vendetta is not putting it mildly. I mean, you know, one, of course, understands those kind of feelings and desires for revenge and so on that come up and when you feel like you've been... Uh, you know, the, the, your wife's analyst uh, seduced her, um, and that's uh, Hillman had already gone through that um, with Kate. So the you know the theme of betrayal uh, plays out in that sense in his own life, and and it's especially acute, I think, uh, in terms of Meyer, who uh, I don't know that he, nobody's ever really written about him very extensively. He was Jung's uh, sort of crown prince. At one point, heir apparent, and they had a split in the late 1950s. But but Meyer was was both Hellman's analyst and Kate's analyst for a long time. And uh, um, and I remember that there's a quote. I, I interviewed Adolf Guggenbuehl, uh, Craig, a close friend of Hellman's for a long time. Also, his, he's he's dead now. But he remembered uh, uh, Meyer writing some Meyer taking the side of this uh, Christian uh, minister and writing to the Institute and saying, why the hell don't you get rid of that little Jew? I mean, you know, wow. Um, and, of course, Hillman had greatly admired Meyer, and, and uh, he'd kind of been a big tutor for him. And so, you know, it's uh, it's quite a thing that's going on personally here. And uh, fascinatingly, through it all, and beautifully in many ways, I think, uh, Kate uh, stands by him and... and uh, you know, doesn't doesn't leave him at that point, and and uh, um, you know that their marriage continues, and they they work through a lot of this. So, but it's but it, boy, it's a tough time, and I I spent a lot of time in the book uh, uh, getting into this this battle, which becomes one to where the the whole you know a lot of the old guard in Zurich are arrayed uh, to try to uh, get rid of Hillman as director of studies. And at the very same time that this enormously public battle within the Jungian world is taking place, um, Hillman, uh, as we said, gets invited to begin speaking at the Eranos conferences and begins to present some of his most important uh, work. Um, and uh, uh, one of the key uh, issues that he uh, decides to talk about is Eros and Psyche, and here he really takes on the Jungians. Uh, tell us a little about how he diverged from Jungian orthodoxy on Eros and Psyche. Well, Eros in Jungian orthodoxy, the figure there, the E-R-O-S, the, the, the Greek figure, the erotic, you know, all of that, um, had always been uh, uh, in Jungian orthodoxy seen as, as, a, uh, as a part of a feminine principle. And it's sort of this emphasis on the on the great mother, and um, and Hellman, through, especially through talks with this remarkable Hungarian um, scholar uh, and of classical 
philology and uh, Greek mythology named uh, Carl Carenier, whom he begins meeting with before he gives his first uh, Eranos lectures. And Eranos, I should say, was this amazing uh, place, which was sort of the underground of the great intellectuals at the time, people who were not necessarily, you know, the uh, the public figures that were the brilliant ones, but it had been started by uh, Jung and Olga Fobe back in the 1930s, and and uh, gorgeous spot overlooking uh, Lake Maggiore near the Swiss-Italian border, and uh, truly a lot of, you know, remarkable people had come together here. Anyway, that's what Eranos was, and, uh, and Hillman uh, had these talks with Carinier about the erotic aspect, and uh, and they what, what's the line? They, uh, the, the the later Jung Hill, uh, Hillman said is a simplification into opposites of eros, yin, mother, life, goddess versus the logos, dad. In other words, logos, knowledge. That was the the male principle. Well, what Hillman sets out to say is is that the uh, that eros is, is has a male essence, and that turns Jungian uh, thinking upside down. The next year at Eranos, he decides to lecture on psychological creativity, and he opens with Keats's beautiful line, call this world a veil of soul-making. And he asks, if soul is, o- is the opus of psychology, what engenders it? So say a little about what he had to say, which was fundamental to his work, about psychological creativity. Yeah, I, he says that um, Hillman... He talks a lot about, uh, you know, if soul is the is the opus of psychology, what what engenders it? And and uh, he, he taught, Jung had spoken of uh, a man's uh, man's anima experience, you know, the experience of the feminine as the initiatory uh, way, and all the. Um, but Hillman is saying that the early myths of psychology are no longer adequate. This heroic age in psychology, he says, is is over. And um, he, he kind of projects ahead. He's going to take this up later with the men's groups in the in the mid 1980s. That the absence of initiation and of mysteries in our culture is largely responsible for our preoccupation with sexuality and uh, our, our immense difficulty then with erotic identity. And then he talks about what we've mentioned a moment ago that eros needs to be understood as a masculine principle. And uh, that that uh, that's where we've got to go, and, and away from this idea of, of the femininity. And um, as Hellman put it, the arrow falls where it will. You know, we can only follow. And he talked about the the suffering that's involved in the in the classic myth of eros and psyche. You know, this dark night of the soul where uh, one gains consciousness. And um, it, it, it's. It's a pretty uh, remarkable lecture, and um, and central to his later work. Central to his later work is Absolutely. the beautiful quote that you have: "Anima becomes psyche through love, and it is eros which engenders psyche." And then the creation is an achievement of love. It is marked by imagination and beauty, and by connection to tradition as a living force, and to nature as a living body. So. Uh, Again, in the midst of these attacks on him, uh, he is doing the seminal work which takes on the Jungian establishment, which is increasingly prepared to see him leave the Institute. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, 
it's this remarkable juxtaposition, right. and, and uh, it's like the one is forcing the other. You know, right. his his uh, some of his right. seminal ideas right. are being that they do come out of his life. I mean, he he talks about that. You know, quite right. a bit. That this is not just uh, intellectual uh, hyperbole or whatever. Is stuff that he's he's just thinking about. I mean, he's living it. Right. And um, then in nineteen during this period that we're talking about where he's he's up against the the young institute old guard and he's formulating all these ideas for Aranos. He he writes this remarkable personal letter to uh, his friend Robert Stein, uh, who has he's studied with at the Institute in the in the nineteen fifties and is now back in America. And he writes uh, Stein about his view of, of analysis and uh he says here, um, analysis is the result of the decline in collective culture. It's not a spiritual discipline, as I've thought all along, nor is it healing. Uh, he said, what then is it? We come close to it when we regard analysis as an art and compare ourselves to artists and to Henry Miller or Lawrence or Picasso or what have you. We look for our answers, don't we, in the life forms of people, how they live, how Jung lives, not just what they write or say. Hence the importance of gossip. We must know how to live analysis, how to live the anima, how to live the phallus. So analysis is to me now the place where the new life form is being created. We are, we analysts, to use an inflated term, the martyrs or victims of this new life form, as artists are victims of the creative drive that makes new art forms, and scientists are victims of what drives through them. We can, he concludes the letter by saying we can't look back at how others did it, there's no real vorbild, a German word for model, no real viable image for how to be. The artist does not have to be conscious of what he goes through, and the older analysts seem to be conscious without going through. Even in practice, they could always run to Jung for protection. We must believe that we're on the forefront fingertips of this thrust. That's such a remarkable letter. So uh, we're moving toward the conclusion here. Ultimately, he is forced out of the Jung Institute. And um, in many ways, it's uh, a relief. Um, uh, and he um, goes in uh, March of 1969 to London to visit the Warburg Collection, uh, which he describes as a giant vault of psycho psychic archaeology. And there he discovers uh, many, many figures, including Marsilio Ficino. And what he discovers, what he was looking for, and I thought this was such a beautiful line, uh, was a tradition prior to Jung and Freud, which could found the work, and which was a tradition in which the soul was the central trope. So tell us a little bit about the Warburg Collection and uh, who was Marsilio Ficino, and what was it that he discovered, having been forced out of the Jung Institute, but in a sense that frees him to develop archetypal psychology as uh, truly his own creation? Absolutely. He, he's, he's at this place, he finds himself alone in this, this library, which uh, Abby Warburg, who was a Hamburg scholar and whose primary interest had been in the art of the Renaissance, had, had this collection which had been moved to London when Hitler came to power. He was originally from Germany. And, and so here, here's all these, these uh, drawers, you know, these, these uh, uh, with images of Aphrodite and Apollo and Hermes. And, and Hillman's looking through all these images, and suddenly he feels this mysterious something happening inside him. And he says it's, it's not like this overwhelming visionary experience, but this realization that dawns that there's a trove of occult knowledge here. 
And so there, there are these texts that are associated with the images and these authors. He'd never heard of this guy, Marsilio Vicino, Ficino, before. Um, he later describes him as a loveless, humpbacked, melancholy teacher and translator who lived in Florence, who had, you know, reformulated and translated Plato and Plotinus. And, and uh, uh, he said that Ficino's reading of ancient philosophy, which is in the Renaissance now, uh, provides an incentive to plumb the depths of one's own soul so that the whole world may become clearer in the inner light, which is a way of seeing that it influenced Michelangelo and others. So Hillman, standing in the Warburg Library, has this overwhelming feeling that something is beginning and something is over, which, of course, is his tenure at the Young Institute. So he, he's very excited about it. Um, and uh, he, he tells me in 2007, that's the quote that you read, you know, that the tradition that he had he found, that he'd been floundering around in this lecture or that seminar, and he said suddenly these pieces were all pulled together into a single tradition in the Warburg, and he's going to come to call that, and that's where Volume 2 will begin uh, with uh, uh, the beginnings of archetypal psychology. One last question I want to ask you. Uh, this is a magisterial book that you've written, and, um, and one of the things that struck me was your own uh, apparently strong grasp of uh, astrological language, uh, which you use at various turning points to describe where Hillman is in his life, sort of citing astrological analysis. Central to the work of Marsilio Ficino yes. was an astrological psychology, and Thomas Moore, basically, I think one could easily say Hillman's leading student and colleague, has a book called The Planets Within, The Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino. So I wanted to ask you, uh, where does this grasp of astrological analysis come from in your own life? And is it related to Ficino's work, or is this something you developed independently? I developed it independently. Um, back in my early 20s, I, I had the came to have several friends who were astrologers, and I had never had my chart done, uh, and pretty much, you know, just known about the daily horoscopes and the papers, but uh, once I I had my chart drawn and began to see, uh, you know, patterns of destiny in my life, which I'd always believed in anyway, and uh, uh, that were sort of written, in a sense, um, and also the science of it as various aspects played out over the years during different turning points in my life, um, I came to feel like astrology had a, had a a lot of validity, and it was certainly uh, uh, valuable to me. And then I've, I've since read Moore's book about Ficino and, and found that very interesting, too. And Hillman, uh, his interest in, ast in astrology developed in the 1950s when he studied uh, the subject in, uh, in Zurich with one of Jung's daughters, uh, Greta Baumann, who was an astrologer. And then uh, Rick Tarnas, in more recent years, a very good friend of, of Hillman's, and uh, I wrote the book Cosmos and Psyche, um, an astrologer and a student of the history of, of astrology. Um, so, you know, it's, it was a common interest that uh, James Hillman and I shared, and and, uh, and so at various points in the book I, I felt, and he did too, that it was good to just, you know, toss in a, uh, something that was going on cosmologically at the time and uh, let people make of it what they will. What haven't I asked you about James Hillman that we might conclude with that you'd like to say? Oh, I would like to say I think that uh, James Hillman was 
um, a seminal figure in my own life. Uh, it was a great privilege to have known him and to uh, be asked to work on his biography. I'd also like to say, though, that you know this was not something that he censored. Uh, he did read it, but he did not um, tell me what to uh, keep in or leave out. Uh, it was amazing to work with someone like 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 him because as he would read various chapters, he would then uh, elaborate on many of the themes, which I feel like made the book uh, even deeper. So you have uh, the subject of the biography commenting on the biography as it's being done. I guess you'd say at, at different points, and and uh, I don't feel like that's made it a hagiography or took away from it. I, I like to feel that it added to it and uh, added different. You know, his his growing perspective as he looked back upon his own life so uh, it was a it was a privilege to have known him and to have interviewed a lot of the people that I did and um, I'm uh, looking forward to diving into volume two Dick Russell author of the life and ideas of James Hillman volume one uh, a, uh, a book that uh, students of archetypal psychology uh, will find indispensable to understanding the field Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thanks so much, Michael. Good to be with you. You've been listening to A Conversation with Michael Lerner and Dick Russell. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.